Amen. If you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and uh, while you're turning there, if you have a child that is kindergarten or younger, you can go with our Sprouts ministry, kindergarten and younger. Let's give our Sprouts workers a round of applause as they serve our children this morning. So faithful and so well. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and um, we might have an extra Bible, one more Bible left if you need one, it's in the back, and uh, by God's grace, we have some Bibles coming in here and there, and, uh, and so we're able to provide Bibles for those who don't have a Bible. If you do own a Bible, I would encourage you to read it, it's always a good thing, and also bring it to church when you come, and follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, uh, we need your Spirit to move in us, through us this morning. Don't let this just simply be a discourse on love. Don't let this time simply be a, uh, uh, various ideas that we can pull out and various ways to apply this text in, in some practical ways to our lives, but let this be powerful. Let this be cutting let this divide us. God, convict us where we have fallen short. Convict us of where we are harboring sin in our lives, bitterness in our lives, hatred, a lack of love. And draw us closer into the loving relationship with you so that we might love one another as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love is certainly the most popular subject of human conversation, isn't it? 
Love is the most fundamental craving of humankind. With love, life makes sense. Without love, the world seems dark and confusing. I was at the gas station last week and I saw two lovers at the gas station. Yeah, pumping gas. And I thought to myself, what is it about love that just makes this sort of a natural thing? We desire love in our marriages. We desire love with our friends. We desire love in our churches. We desire love in our neighborhoods, in our, in our families. We all want love. We're all, as humans, chasing after love. Yet at the same time, I think we all could agree that we're not really sure if, if we're experiencing love in the world. You just listen to pop music and you get an idea of, uh, of, of what the world thinks of love and, and I think we would agree with a lot of it. Love, said Frank Sinatra, is a many-splendored thing. Amen? In the movie Frozen, which my children are devouring uh, for the last month, singing songs from Frozen incessantly, love is an open door, they sing. Love is an open door. Love is an open door. Love is an open door. To what? I don't know. But it's an open door. Yet we look around and, and uh, with, with the hope of love, with the, the reality that we desire love, we might lament that, uh, that we don't experience love in this world. What? What is wrong with the world today? Asked Flight of the Concords. The righteous brothers answered, You've lost that love and feeling. Whoa! <laughs> that love and feeling. Yet we all still agree with the Beatles. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Everybody together. Love is all you need. And for Stevie Wonder, it was a mere phone call away. I just called. Come on, sing with me. To say, I love you. Mm. I just, no, we'll just sit there. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, uh, Charity and Its Fruits, he posed this question, what makes the church like heaven? Of everything that we do as a church, of everything we experience as a church, what is it in particular that makes the church like heaven? Now, the Corinthians in their church, they might have answered that a number of different ways. They thought possibly that it was their knowledge that made church like heaven, their great understanding of the gospel and how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of of, of, of everything we've been longing for and looking for. It's our knowledge that makes, makes the church like heaven. Or maybe they would have said, no, it's our, it's our charismatic 
leaders. It's these, these guys with big voices and these guys who, uh, who have these cult-like followings coming after them and uh, their, their fans, their devotees. It's, it's our leaders that we love. That when we see them, that is a glimpse of heaven. Or maybe they would have said, no, it's our spiritual gifts. When we see our spiritual gifts in operation, when we're all operating in the gifts that God has given us, that's heaven-like. The craving for the miraculous. When we see healings or when we see prophecy, that is a glimpse of heaven. You see, in search of heaven or a heaven-like experience, we go after Leaders, and we go after knowledge, and we go after gifts and, and experiences, and, and we want something big and amazing and something that feels spiritual, something that is miraculous. And so some then just beg God, can I please see someone healed of cancer so that way I can get a taste of heaven, a powerful experience. Or maybe faith that can literally move a mountain. And surprisingly, we don't find heaven there. Others might say, I want to I see heaven and so give me, give me the gift of tongues or, or give me musical worship that like rattles the soul. Heaven is not found there. You see, the very thing that pop culture craves, the very thing that we want, the very thing that we we long for and that we all sort of lament as we see it missing, this is where we find a glimpse of heaven. And that is love. That's in the way that we love. Chapter 12, last week, the Apostle Paul, he showed us what a truly spiritual church looks like, and that is when everybody, every member is operating in their spiritual gifts, serving one another, edifying the body, building one another up. Now in this chapter, he basically says, and now spiritual gifts aren't the point. So this is what it looks like to operate in this world and to grow and to build as a church and remember that these Gifts are not the point. Jonathan Edwards got it right when he answered that question. What is it that makes the church look like heaven? And that is love. What is it that we experience in this body that will remain? And that is love. This morning, I want to give you a glimpse into heaven as we discuss this, this chapter. As we walk through it, my aim is to first show you the primacy of love, why love or how love is at the center, how love is, is at the highest height. And then I want to define love because we just might not know what love actually is as much as we talk about love. And then lastly, I want to talk about why love is at the center and at the highest height. So first, let's talk about the primacy of love. Look at chapters, or verse, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 13. He says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, 
Tongues, the word there is, is a general word that literally means tongues. It's a good translation. Uh, it it uh, is a general word that could also refer to languages or dialects. So here in verse 1, we see tongues of men or languages, dialects of men. In, in the Scriptures, the gift of tongues seems to refer to actual languages of, of men that, uh, that you know nothing of, that God gives an individual the ability now to speak within, or to speak in. For example, Acts. In the beginning of Acts, we see the apostles speaking in languages that they know nothing of to people who speak various languages so that they might hear the gospel in their own language. So that's an example of, how, of one outworking of the gift of tongues in the Scripture. Paul says, look, if, if, if I can speak, so imagine me, I, I, I uh, flunked Spanish class when I was a, a junior in high school, all right? Megan, I am sorry, <laughs> Megan's giving me this look like, ah, oh, you're that kid, huh? And I go to your church. Yeah, um, couldn't play basketball, it was bad, it's part of, yeah. What if I just, all of a sudden, just, I had the ability to speak in Spanish and French and Swahili and just like, I'm a master, like, like that would be amazing, right? Paul's saying, look, even if I can do this, even if I can, even if I have the gift to speak in various languages, even if I can do that, now let's pause right there, then he says, and of angels, what does he mean by that? Is this, does this make sense of of maybe a lot of what we would see today broadly, the gift of tongues as, as people, uh, individuals speak in languages and you don't understand what they're saying. Is, is that the, the, the language of angels? I don't know. Um, just a little side, side note here. In Eng- every language has certain sounds that are attached to it, okay? So English has certain sounds that are attached to it. Swahili has certain sounds that are attached to it. Um, what's, what's interesting is when we go across the globe and we hear what passes for a, a, the gift of tongues in a lot of different churches, the sounds that are being uttered are the sounds of the language that that individual speaks. Meaning, if there was an angelic language that, that would make sense of a lot, uh, if there was an angelic language, there would be certain sounds that are attached to that language, and it would be a global experience, a similar kind of expression. All that to say, we'll get into that more next week, and, but, but I, I don't want to miss the, the broader point. This is why I actually kind of go there. This is what I think Paul is, is getting at. I think Paul is... I think this is hyperbolic to, to an extent. Um, Paul often is sarcastic in the way that he writes. And I think essentially what he is saying is... I don't think he's saying that the languages like speak a certain... or the angels speak a certain language and they, sometimes we're, we're speaking their language and it's like coded and nobody knows what you're saying. I think what he's saying is this, if I have the ability, the God-given gift to be able to speak in various languages, in the gift of tongues, 
or even if I can speak in the language of the angels and I don't have love. You see what he's saying? Like if I can do something that is miraculous, and then let's go beyond that. If I could speak in a language that we know nothing of, like a, some kind of spiritual language that the angels speak. Now is that true? Can some people, I don't know, maybe. But Paul, the, what Paul is saying is, if I can do something that is just absolutely jaw-dropping phenomenal, but I don't have love, and it's absolutely nothing. It's absolutely nothing. Now, what is five minus one? Are there any mathematicians in the room? Four, thank you. Five minus one usually equals four, all right? Uh, God is a different kind of mathematician. Look what, look what Paul does here in, in chapter 13. He says, look, if, if I can do this, if I have the gift of tongues, and then he mentions four more gifts. If I can speak in tongues, in all sorts of tongues, and even the tongues of angels. Then he goes on and he says, if I can prophesy, if I have the gift of, of prophecy. prophecy. If, if, I, if I can... Um, understand all mysteries, if I have the gift then of wisdom, if I have the gift of knowledge, if I have all faith, like I have this, this gift of, of radical faith that can move mountains, tongues, prophecy, wisdom, knowledge, faith, like if if, I, if I'm a person with these kinds of gifts, like God has just endowed me with amazing spiritual gifts and I can operate in all sorts of ways and I can minister and serve the body and edify and grow the church and I lack one thing. Minus love, it equals zero. Five minus one equals Zero, five amazing spiritual gifts, amazing uh, opportunities and, and ways that we can, we can come together as a body and serve. And if I lack love, I have absolutely nothing. Do you see what he's saying here? As the Corinthians are bickering and as they're sort of lifting up themselves over others and they're saying, well, my spiritual gift is better than yours and I'm truly spiritual because I've got this gift and I'm really better than you are. And Paul's saying, look, you guys are completely missing it. God has hooked you up. You can serve in certain ways. You can speak. You can teach. You can, you can, you can encourage. You can have faith. You can pray. But you lack love. You're, you've got nothing. He's saying that love is absolutely at the center and the highest height of what it means to be heaven-like. Spiritual gifts and ministry are not the point. He goes on in verse 3. He says, if I give away all that I have. So now he turns to like social action. If I do amazing acts. If I, give, if I, if I, if I live in poverty. I, give, I sell my house and my car and I give all my money away to some organization and, and I... I give, all that, I give away all that I have. He says, if I give up my body to be burned, if I live a radical life, 
I want to go out there and I want to be doing some crazy things for God. And then I, even if I, I'm so radical, I, I end up being burned to death at the stake. And I'm doing it to be seen as radical. I'm doing it to be seen as tremendous, as a great servant. I'm doing it to be seen as a philanthropologist or a philanthropist or doing it to be seen as a good person. He's saying then you're doing it without love. And you've just given everything away and you've just been burned for absolutely no reason. Spiritual gifts and ministry are not the point. Love, he's saying, is the point. Now what is it about love that uniquely makes it uh, center and the highest height? We're going to get there in a moment. But before we do, let's make sure we know what love is. And this is actually what Paul does. He introduces it and then he says, now lest you believe that you know what love means, let me painstakingly take some time here and let's work through in great detail and let's talk about what this kind of love actually is. Like the 80s song, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. What is love? Everybody asks that question. What is love? What is love? All right, thank you. Let's look at his definition starting in verse 4. He says, okay, let's talk about what love is. Verse 4, he says, love is patient. Love endures injury. Love is betrayed and it continues without retaliation. He goes on in verse 4, love is kind. So not only is love patient, but love seeks to repay betrayal with kindness. Love does not envy. Meaning love does not wish for someone else's success. Some other student is more talented than you are. Love does not wish for someone else's success. Love does not boast. So not only does love not wish to be someone else or to have the success of someone else. And as a matter of fact, when we talk about envy, let's just back up one quick second. Envy is not wishing we were someone else. Envy is wishing we had what someone else has and that they didn't have it. That's envy. All right. So not only does love not envy, but love also does not boast. Meaning we don't prop ourselves up. We are not arrogant. We don't, we don't seek to show how great we actually are and show, our, show off our talents. Um, has anybody ever... Uh, been stronger than you in a certain area. And as you're talking about it, you really get the sense that they are just boasting. Like they are just, they're better than you. All right, let's be honest. They're more talented. They're more skillful. They've got more abilities. And as they're talking about it, they're just basically boasting. Like, look, look, how, look how great I am. Now, did that feel like love? Of course not. You see, when we're trying to help someone through a situation and we begin to boast about how great we've got it together, it's not actually love. 
So love does not envy, he says. Love also does not boast. Love is not arrogant. It's not proud or puffed up. He's been dealing with this throughout the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. Verse 5, he says, love is not rude. The theologian D.A. Carson said you can spot a gentleman not in the way that he treats his superiors, but you can spot a gentleman in the way that he treats his servants. How do you treat those who are under you? If you're a boss, your employees, or if you're a parent, your children. I mean, don't, let's not talk about how we treat those who we, uh, we, we highly respect and we want them to like us. Not how do we treat just our casual friends or maybe some people you bump into at church or maybe me. Or How do you treat those you are closest to? How do you treat your spouse if you're married? How do you treat your brothers and flesh and blood, brothers and sisters? Like, are you, when, when we look at these relationships, they begin to show us who we really are and, and whether or not we really love. Do you love? Love is not rude. Love is also uh, does not insist on its own way, meaning it's not self-seeking. Love gives up its own benefit for the benefit of others. Love is not irritable. I needed to be reminded of that this morning when I couldn't find my sock. It's not easily angered. Love does not have a blistering hot temper that is bottled up just waiting to explode. Just waiting for that moment when you are offended. Yes, they said what I thought they were going to say. Here we go. I've been waiting for this moment. You guys know what I'm talking about. Like, thank God I've been offended. (laughs) Right? Amen. Love is love is not resentful, or it does not uh, keep a list of wrongs. How many of you have been wronged against? Raise your hand if you've ever been wronged against. All right, almost all of you. How many of you have been wronged against by this church? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> In your mind, raise your hand. How many of you have been wronged against by me? Don't raise your hand. All right? Now, love does not keep a list of wrongs. Do you see what I did there? We just made everything all right. No, seriously, though. Love does not keep a list of wrongs. We don't have a, a, a private sort of uh, filing cabinet where we, where we store all of the wrongs that this person or these individuals or this group has committed against me. And then when it happens again or when something goes awry or when we're trying to make a point, we conveniently, let's just pause for a moment and let's pull this drawer out. And, oh, there's your file. Shall I open it? I mean, I can put it back, right? That's not love. And we know that's not love because when someone does it to us, it's not love. Love is not evil. It does not rejoice in evil. Meaning some people, they they actually find joy in uh, complaining. You're not one of these individuals, are you? Like you really, like where you really get fired up, like on the inside, you'll, you would never admit this, but really where you get fired up is when you can have a complaining session with someone. 
You can sit back. You can create some divisions. You can talk about problems. You can talk about issues. You can gossip. Like, this is really where I enjoy like, life. This is good. Love, he says, does not rejoice in evil. Meaning when somebody falls in the church, we don't find any joy at all discussing this person's failure. However, love does rejoice in the truth, he says. Meaning even when things are rough and things within the church maybe are bad or, or, or there are struggles or in your private life, where you find truth, you always rejoice. We rejoice when we see truth. This is the definition of love. It's not uh, any definition that we come up with on our own just thinking culturally, is it? Verse 7, Paul sort of sums it all up with these, this list of alls. Look at verse 7. He says, he says, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Another way to, to word those, this, this verse, love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. And love always perseveres. Now how can we read this list, this definition of love, in the context of what Paul is saying, so if we don't have this, then we have nothing. How can we read this and then just sort of like flippantly, you know, like skipping away like a, like a I don't know, like a child on a summer day, happy, joyful, because this describes me. Like, oh my goodness, like, Jess... Look, I found a description of me in the Bible. I was just reading this and I got to these verses and I thought to myself, like, wow, that's really like, that's me. God was thinking of me when he wrote this. If you do that, well, we'll hold off on, on that sentence right there. Um, Let's do this. I want to give you two quick applications before we move on on what this list ought to do for us in our lives. First, this list should crush us. This list should first crush us. This list gives us a glimpse into the, re the eternal reality of the normal daily life in the kingdom of God. This is what citizens of God's kingdom look like. And oh, by the way, this is where we're moving. This is where we're heading. And so therefore, love like, it, like, like this now. We must first be crushed by this list as we recognize and realize that there is no way that we could love like this. As our church is to be marked by this, we must all in this moment fall on our knees in repentance. God, forgive us for not loving. And Jesus summed up the entire moral law with two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. As King mentioned this morning, we have failed at both of these. We have not loved God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. The law comes to us to expose our sin. The law comes to us to expose our weakness and to show us that we need something more. 
So you're like that child skipping along on a summer day, like, oh, this is so easy. I love 1 Corinthians 13. It's my favorite chapter. I love. I just want to be a loving person. You don't realize you're like skipping along like a mouse heading toward a chunk of cheese sitting in a trap, just waiting for you. It's easy to love humanity, one person said. But it's very hard to love a human. It's easy to sit back behind your computer screen on Facebook and you watch a video and you're about to type a post about some kind of global issue and just how much you love humanity. Yet you can't love the human that lives in your house with you. It's easy to talk about how we love the church. And it's really hard to love a church member. Anybody who believes that this list is easy and that this is just a, a mere description now of just their daily life as it is, and, and they don't, there's no sense of conviction at all attached with the reading and the proclamation of these words. This is a person who doesn't understand half the gospel. You see, the, the gospel essentially begins with God as the holy, just creator of this world. And we have fallen from that God. And we are now dirty, sinful, rebellious creatures. We are totally depraved. We are flesh-driven. We are self-centered. And our very best efforts at love often have me at the center. Something that I receive from this relationship. Some, some, some way that I will be perceived and seen as a result of this kind of love. So this list must first crush us. Secondly, this definition of love should encourage us. You see, this is not prescriptive, but rather it is descriptive. What I mean by that is this definition of love is not saying you must do these things in order to inherit the kingdom of God. But what it's saying is this. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because Jesus perfectly lived this kind of love, and because His act of obedience is imputed to you and His blood has forgiven you of your sins, your identity has shifted and this now describes who you actually are. And you say, well, I certainly don't see myself in there. I, don't, I mean, I see myself struggling with love. And, and the Gospel comes to you and says, yes, but you have the Holy Spirit. And this is now who you are. You are now freed to love in this way. Being a Christian at its core is a change in identity. We are no longer identified as the person we once were, as the flesh driven, self-centered individual. But now we have an identity shift and we've been given the identity of Jesus Christ adopted into the family of God as His sons and as His daughter. And we are now freed to become a loving individual. At the cross, Jesus, who was perfect love, endured God's wrath for my lack of love. 
where I have failed to love in this way, where I have failed to love God and love my neighbor, Jesus went to the cross and He absorbed the wrath of God that was due me, the sinner. My sins were placed onto Him. He paid the penalty for my sin, meaning I am forgiven. However, the Gospel doesn't just stop there. The Gospel continues that now we are not only forgiven, but we are given the Holy Spirit of God, which gives us the ability to do what we never previously were able to do. And that is to love like Jesus. Now this doesn't mean that as we are transformed by the Gospel and the Holy Spirit lives with us and gives us the ability and the power to love one another, it doesn't mean that as we come together as a church that this will be a a, a picnic basket full of fuzzy feelings. But rather in the Bible, we are called brothers and sisters. And there's nothing fuzzy feeling kind of love about brothers and sisters are there? Meaning, what does is a, what is a brotherly and sisterly love look like? Well, half the time or three-quarters of the time, it looks like you're uh, uh, annoyed with one another. She's sitting too close to me. Tell him to stop touching me. You look at your brother or your sister sometimes and you're thinking to, myself, you're thinking to yourself, how is it that we are possibly related? I mean, how is it? I know we look similar, but how is it that I possibly share blood with this individual? This is what brotherly and sisterly love looks like. Yet it's also the kind of love which says, I will give my life for this individual. I would, I would in a heartbeat, die for my brother, die for my sister. It's the kind of love that outlasts all of our friends. It's the kind of love that begins as children and ends on our dying uh, uh, deathbeds. As a, as a family, as a, as a church family of brothers and sisters called to love one another, let us annoy each other. Like when you're annoyed at somebody in the church, praise God. That's a brotherly and sisterly kind of relationship. You come to me and you're like, Joel, can you tell so-and-so to stop touching me? Stop. This is like daily conversation with the interns. Stop touching. Walk away. Praise God when we get annoyed with each other. Praise God when we look at, look at one another and we think to ourselves, are we seriously spiritually related? Like we're seriously in the same, I go to church with this person? Yet it's a love which says, I would gladly give my life for you in a heartbeat. It's a love that unites and that brings together diverse individuals into a oneness and into a family which even with problems and issues is long-suffering and and patient and doesn't keep a list of wrongs. And so friends, we then are freed to actually love in this way because of Jesus Christ. Now, lastly, I want to go back to what Paul started with, and that is the primacy of love. Why love is uh, at the very center. Why love is at the highest height of what it means to be a heaven-minded church 
family. Verses eight through 10. Look at those verses with me. Love never ends, he says. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, the partial will pass away. Love never ends is not really meant to be just sort of a nice, I actually read that almost every wedding I do. I end it right there, love never ends. (laughs) So nice. And that's fine, it's truthful, you know, you guys that I've married, it's, it's all good. But within the context of what he's saying, he's, he's making a bigger point than just trying to be sentimental. He's saying, look, what you experience, this kind of love in the church, this never ends. When you're sitting in a small group and, and you have this moment of like, wow, we love each other. The way we just went around that circle and everybody shared and poured in. I just experienced the love that we talk about. And we, and we get it for just a moment. That love never ends. Like that is the reality. That is the norm in heaven. Love, he's saying, remains. But now let's go back to spiritual gifts. What about our spiritual gifts? What about our ministry? What about our preaching? What about reading the Bible? What, what about these things? He's saying, look, everything else passes away. Look at the, look at the text. He says, uh, prophecy, tongues, knowledge will cease. Now, does that mean that in this moment these gifts are no longer available? Well, what does it mean when that which is perfect has come? We have to look at when these gifts cease to understand what he's saying. In verse 10, when that which is perfect has come, the partial, he says, will pass away. So we see right there in verse 9 that knowledge, tongues, prophecy are all in part, in part, in part. And then when that which is perfect comes, that which is in part will pass away. Skip to verse 12. He says right now, in this earthly existence, we see through a mirror dimly. But then we will see face to face. So that which is perfect is when we see Christ face to face. It's when we see God face to face. What he's saying is, is right now, our, our, what, uh, we see God through the reading of His Word. Right now, we see God through our eyes of faith. Right now we see God in one another, in the image of God that is on each individual, yet it is a cracked image. It is like looking into a cracked mirror and you sort of see the image, yet it's a distorted image. So we are living right now in the partial. We're living in God's kingdom, yes, but it is the here and not yet kingdom. It's, it's been inaugurated, we experience it, we see it through the Word, through our eyes of faith, through our interaction with the image of God, yet it is not fully here. 
The kingdom of God in its fullest uh, extent has not yet crashed to earth. Yet, when that which is perfect has come, when we don't merely see with eyes of faith or through the reading of His Word or through the cracked icons of looking at one another, but when we see God face to face, when we see Christ face face to face, Jesus rose from the dead. And the Bible says that all who trust in Christ also then have the hope of resurrection. Meaning if Jesus rose from the dead and all of the blessings of the Father that are now due the Son are due us, then what that means is that we will one day rise from the dead, see God face to face, we will be We will fully know Him in the way that He fully knows us now. We will see Christ face to face. In that moment, will preaching be necessary? Of course not. In that moment, will prophecy be necessary? Of course not. In that moment, will gifts of healing be a big deal? Of course not. In that moment, will knowledge be Matter, the gift of knowledge, will it be a big deal? Of course not. What remains, he says, is love. Now, Paul here then gives his own illustrations. So as I was writing my sermon, sometimes the hardest thing for me to do is come up with like ways to illustrate and examples to give. And I was so delighted when I saw Paul just gave, gave me one right there. Uh, made, it, made it much easier. Paul gives his own illustration of this. He says, think about a kid he says, when I, when I was a child, I, I uh, thought like a child. When I was a child, I talked like a child. When I was a child, I reasoned like a child. Now, have you ever tried to reason with a child? Anybody? It doesn't work. I'll just let you know. Children talk a certain way, and they develop, and they grow Children think a certain way, and they develop and they grow. There are certain uh, things that kids need, which as children become adults, they put off. They no longer need these things. For example, diapers. A baby needs diapers. Amen? But Lord willing, as long as this child grows into a healthy adult, the child learns to control himself. And they can put away the diapers. The diapers, while at one time, like I know some of you moms right now, you think diapers are it. Like this is the end goal of life right now is to find a good deal or to find the right cloth diaper or whatever. Pretty soon, like that, we we put away childish things. We don't need them anymore. And we'll find them and it's like, oh, look at this cute little diaper. And it means absolutely nothing to us anymore. Other than maybe a, a reminder of the past. Children need to go to kindergarten. They need to learn their ABCs. They need to sing the alphabet song. But friends, when you graduate with your PhD, you don't want to be going back to kindergarten, all right? You don't want to be like trying to remember the alphabet. And you take your DVD and you stick it in, there's like these little animals, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, I remember it now, I got it. 
No, we put away each other. We've now mastered the language. And so we don't need to go back to the DVDs and go back to kindergarten. Children need playgrounds to develop their muscles and to learn social skills and to grow and to play with other kids. But a 30-year-old man on the sliding board gets down to the bottom of the slide, runs back around, up the ladder, back down to the bottom, back up the ladder, slides down again. That's the kind of 30-year-old man that you, uh, you want to stay away from. Everything all right back there? <laughs> all right, praise God. Yes, and children need bumpers <laughs> and helmets. And so do adults. Wear your helmet. What Paul is saying is, is, is this. There are certain things that children need. There are certain ways that kids need to grow and to develop. But once we reach maturity, these things of our past childhood are mere relics. And there is no use for them anymore. Now Paul here, what he's talking about, what he's, uh, what, what he's liking this to is the earthly existence versus the heavenly existence. Right now in our earthly existence, we need certain things, certain gifts to build the church, to edify one another. Listen, we need right now people with the gift of encouragement. Because we are in a fallen world and we need to be encouraged. We need people with the gift of tremendous faith. Because right now we can only see God through eyes of faith. And so we need those individuals who have the gift of faith. We need to come together as a body. But friends, what he's saying is this. When that which is perfect has come, or that which is mature has come, when we now stand face to face with God, we no longer see God only through His Word, or through the preaching of His Word, or through faith, but we see Christ face to face. Then the gifts and the ministries, and the preaching, and everything that we do to edify and to grow, all of these things are no more. John Calvin said that uh, the individual who has the gift of knowledge in heaven is on the level of an idiot. Meaning, the, the, it's, it's sort of like trying to wear a diaper as a 40-year-old. A children's baby's diaper. The, the things we make so much, so much of here the way that we serve, the way that we love, or the, or the way that we, uh, we encourage one another, the way that we seek to build one another up, these things are, are trivial in the kingdom of God. What remains? Look at the last verse. He says in verse 13, he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, why is the greatest of those three love? The Gospel of John describes God in what way? Or first John, God is love. Would we say that God is faith? 
We wouldn't say that because God has no need for faith. He is completely self-sufficient and, and secure in His own being. Would we say that God is hope? Well, God has no need for hope because God has all hope in Himself. But we would say God is love. John says God is love. Paul is saying God is love. The very thing that everyone in this world craves. Love. It's the very thing that is given to every one of God's children. The supernatural ability to really love one another. You see, love is the very center and the highest height of who God is. And we as human beings are made in the image of God. Love is not a gift that is given to some and not given to others. But rather, love is something that is given to all sons and daughters of God. Greater love has no man than this, than the man who lays down his life for his friend. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you know Him? Do you know this Christ? Do you know Jesus who paid the penalty for your sins, who rose victoriously from the dead, who has given you the power and authority over sin and the ability to love? Are you relying on Christ? Are you trusting in Christ? And you will not perish, but you will have life, an everlasting kind of life. And you will have love. So friends, let us love one another as love remains. Amen. Father, we ask that you give us the ability to do what we naturally do not have the ability to do, and that is to truly love. To love according to your definition, not according to the definition of the world. To love with a self, selfless kind of love. The kind of love that Christ demonstrated on the cross as he laid down his life for us, as he paid the penalty for our sins as He rose, giving us victory over death and over sin. We thank You for the assurance that all who trust in Christ are saved, are freed, and can love. And so God, may we love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.